Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Jeff Yulden. I want to read a verse that I think all of you know well. I think, in fact, I think that all of you could repeat this by heart. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I'd like you to turn it up, though, even though you know it, and you could repeat it by heart. I'm positive of that. And when you read it, Philippians is just after um, Ephesians. So you go back Corinthians, then Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians. All right? Hard book sometimes to find these little ones. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13. And what does Paul say? I can do how many? All things through Christ who strengthens me. I think if you asked a, an artist to paint that, a picture of that verse, he may paint a picture of a soldier standing on the top of a mountain, a, a conqueror, with his sword flashing in the sunlight. Maybe that's the way one artist would picture it, if, he tried to, if you tried to put that verse into a, into a picture. But if you thought, where was Paul when he wrote that statement? He was in prison. And I used to think when I first became a Christian that it would be a good thing to go to jail for Christ. I don't think that any longer. Because I have studied and read a little bit about the prisons back in those days. Our prisons are like motels compared to what Paul would have gone through because, first of all, there was no sanitation. So you can just imagine after you've been in the, in the prison for a little while, I don't have to go further to, to uh, picture your imagination. You can understand. No running water. No windows. Because usually the prison was down underneath the earth. And that's certainly true. If you go over to Rome, Pastor, we have a, a, a Roman from, from a real genuine Italian here, pastor. Um, if you go over to the Mamertine prison, it's down underneath the ground. And a man could scream himself hoarse and no one would be any of the wiser. And so Paul, in that situation, could write this, this verse and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Most of us would have been discouraged under similar circumstances, but not Paul. They could chain his arms and his feet, but not his confidence in God. And uh, God called Paul to do a task, and that is the task of spreading the message to the Gentiles or to the nations. A similar calling that God has given to us as Seventh-day Adventists. We, we have a conviction, a very deep conviction that God has called us to preach to every nation, kindred, tongue and people. That means the world, the whole world. And sometimes we can get discouraged and wonder whether we're ever going to be able to accomplish it. 
Well, I want you to think this morning about Paul's story because I want to talk to you about Paul. Because if God can use a man like Paul, then he can use any of us. Now, most of us have a very, perhaps, an unbalanced view about Paul. Because we usually associate Paul with, um, with his brilliant mind and he had all of that. But there were a lot of other things about Paul that were not very good. And I want to talk to you about those as we move along and sketch his story this morning. But you'll remember the first introduction we have to, um, to Paul was he was breathing out threatenings, the Bible said, against the Christians. He hated Christians. In fact, Paul's name, or Saul it was then, Saul's name to the Christians was like Hitler's name to the Jews. He, he brought fear into their hearts because he had authorization and he was on his way down to Damascus to wipe out every last Christian there was. And he had the authorization from the authorities to do it. And he was on his horse. And as he was looking down over the, uh, the hill, as you come down from Jerusalem, from Israel, down to Damascus, then you go over a hill and you can see, as you get close to Syria, what is Syria today, Damascus, you can see the city. It's like an oasis. It's probably the, the longest inhabited city in the world. And I fear what's going to be left of it after these foolish people and what they're doing today in Syria. If there's anything left, I'll be amazed. But Saul was on his way and he was just about to spur his, his uh, horse on when suddenly a light shone from heaven and the voice came from heaven which said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul looked up into the face of Jesus. No doubt as he was on Calvary and he saw in Christ the tears that he should have been shedding but Christ was shedding. And it was the face of Jesus on that Damascus road that changed the Apostle Paul, Saul into the Apostle Paul. It was the... the, the uh, the glimpse of what Christ had done. And you know, we are told that if we would spend a thoughtful time, an hour, every day in contemplation of the life of Christ, our lives would be changed too. I don't know of anything else that will change a person's hard heart than to think about the closing scenes of Christ's life. And I would like to encourage you this morning, if you feel that your love for Christ is waning, I would like you to pick up that book, Desire of Ages, and read the chapters, chapters entitled, the, Law, the It Is um, Let Not Your Heart Be Troubled, Gethsemane, um, and the, the, uh, the, the It Is Finished. Those chapters that surround the death of Christ and the chapters that are leading up to his death. And if you can read those chapters without being moved 
then your heart is a lot harder than I think it is because it's impossible. Your heart will respond and that's why we've been told to spend a thoughtful time every day on the life of Christ. That is the thing that will change your life. That's what changed the Apostle Paul when he saw the face of Jesus that day on the Damascus Road. And as uh, we read the story and we follow through, in fact, let me read you so that you don't think I'm making this up. Come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, because Paul said it was the face of Jesus that changed his life. Have a look at this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. 2 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. Remember, there are two books of Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, it says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. And it was the face of Jesus that changed the Apostle Paul. In fact, um, if you come back to Philippians, again, just over a few pages, Philippians chapter 3, Paul makes this statement in verse 8. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. Philippians 3 and verse 8. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of how many things? All things and count them as rubbish that I may win Christ. So Paul said when he became a Christian, he lost everything. He lost his people. He lost his friends. He lost his parents. He lost his job. He literally lost everything. In fact, uh, even in Jewish homes today, and certainly back in Paul's day, it was true, Christ's day, they would pay, because they didn't have banks like we have, and they would pay into a common pool. And often that pool was where? Where was the pool? Not in the bank, where was it? Yes, well, not under the bed so much as um, a hole in the ground on the property. That's why Jesus told the story, remember, about the man? Because they didn't have banks. And they wouldn't have trusted anyone more than we would trust people today with your money. And so all the money was paid into a common pool in the family. And then members of the family could call upon that when they needed it. Get the idea? Now, when a person became a Christian and they walked out, they were pushed out and they left everything. They lost everything. In fact, um, I'm told, as I have read about the Jews' attitude towards Christianity, when a person of the member of the family becomes a Christian, those Jews will often go out to the cemetery, they will dig a hole, they will put a a, a, um, casket in the ground, and as far as that 
person who's become a Christian is concerned, they are dead and buried and gone for time and for eternity. That's how the deep the feeling is, particularly in the past, against Christianity. In fact, um, I was reading on one occasion a, a Jewish mother would see her son lying in the gutter. She would walk on the other side of the street if he'd become a Christian because he has been disowned. And Paul lost everything. He probably lost his wife. How can we be fairly certain about that? Well, we can, we can because to be a member of the Sanhedrin, which Paul was, or was, then you had to be a married man. It's very clear about that. Even though Paul's wife is not mentioned by name, um, nevertheless, we can be pretty certain that he lost his wife. And probably his wife said, all right, Paul, Saul, if you want to go and get mixed up with that queer sect, I'm going back to my mother, mother and father. And they separated. And he literally lost everything. In fact, just go back to Acts and I'd like you to keep your Bibles open now because we're going to trace the story of Saul through the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9 and verse 16 and we'll pick up the story um, here. Acts the ninth chapter and verse 16. If you can just keep... uh, your Bible open. Acts 9 and verse 16 where it says, For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. In other words, when Saul was converted, the first thing Jesus said, because you'll notice that's the words of Jesus, he said, I'm going to show him how many things he will suffer for my sake. And yet Saul could say before he uh, did anything, he wanted to be baptized. In fact, um, if you continue to read verse 18, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. He was baptized before he even had a meal. And he hadn't eaten for a number of days. Verse 19, so when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Well, Saul had a conviction. And the conviction was now that he had been called to preach the message that Christ had given him. So he starts out. And who does he start with? Verse 23. Who does he first go to? Verse 23, now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Now you know what it's like when you hear this message and and it gets hold of you. The first persons usually that you want to go to talk to are whom? Hmm? Your closest people to you, which is your family, isn't that right? And you go to them and and you've been so thrilled with what you've heard, you go to them and you dump it on them because you can't imagine why they wouldn't be enthusiastic like you have been about what uh, you've learned and what usually happens. As soon as you begin to talk to them about it, what happens? It's like hitting a brick wall. Bang! 
And that's exactly what happened to uh, Saul because he went to the Jews, his own people, and immediately they plotted uh, to kill him. So he decides, well, if the Jews won't listen, I'll go down to the Christians. They'll receive me with enthusiasm. Well, have a look at verse 23. Verse 20, uh, uh, verse, verse 29. Chapter 16, we're still in 16, verse 29. So he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. But just before that, um, you'll find there in verse uh, 26, he went to the Christians. Then Saul came to Jerusalem. He tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. So you can imagine, Saul comes to the Christian church. He comes to Walara. And when he entered the door of the church and all the Christians saw him, what do you think happened? They freaked out. Because all they could imagine was what he'd been doing. So when Saul walked into church, into the Christian church, they gave him a wide berth. No one shook his hand. No one made him feel comfortable. You know, sometimes I meet people that went along to church and no one shook my hand and no one spoke to me. Well, remember Paul. He went exactly through the same thing. They wouldn't trust him. So he even leaves the Christians now and decides, well, I better go and have a little talk to the uh, Greeks. Verse 29, he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. So the Jews wanted to kill him, the Christians had nothing to do with him, and now the Greeks want to kill him. Then if you come down to chapter 14... Yes, over to chapter 14, we'll find that things seem to change for a moment. Chapter 14 of Acts, the 14th chapter and verse 5. And when a violent attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone him. Now, I guess that nobody's ever been stoned here. And I'm not talking about the modern form of stoning I'm talking about the literal stoning they picked up stones and wanted to kill him now Saul was very adept at throwing stones he was used to that because what had he uh, uh, witnessed just a little while before the death of Stephen and while I'm not sure that he picked up any of the stones himself that time nevertheless he would have been very familiar And so now the tables are turned. And this time they stone him. Then he heals a man and they treat him as a god. Now when people treat you as a god, you can usually do something with them. But as our politicians find, popular opinion is a very fickle thing. You can be uh, the rooster one day and the feather dust of the next. And that's exactly what happened because um, if you have a look at verse 19, this is chapter 14, 19, then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. 
In fact, he was so battered as a result of this that they thought he was dead. And so they just dragged his body like you would a, 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 a wild animal. They just dragged it out and threw it on the rubbish dump. Didn't even bother to bury him. And it was while he was in that situation... battered and bleeding, that God gave him a vision. And the vision was so real, it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It was so real, he was given a vision of heaven. In fact, he said it was so real to him, he wasn't sure whether he had actually been there or whether it was a vision. That's how real it was in his thinking. And I believe that it was that vision, as recorded in Corinthians, when he was caught up to the third heaven, that vision that changed and held Saul through all the the things that he is going to go through, which we're going to talk about now. That's why in evangelism, I always want to talk to the people very early in the campaign about the subject of heaven. Because I am convinced that if people can get a vision of what God has for them at the end of the way, it will help them go through the difficulties that surely the devil will place in their path before they get there. And that's what God did to the Apostle Paul. Have a look at chapter 16 now and verse 9 because now he has another vision. Chapter 16 of Acts and verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now listen, if you got a vision from God and the vision was come over and help us, what would you expect when you arrived on the beach at Macedonia What would you have expected to take place if God had given you a vision to come over and help the people? What do you think? What what might have been your expectations, do you think? A warm welcome, absolutely. People would be on the beach to welcome you and say how pleased we are that you've come to our place, our country. Do you know how many people were there to meet Paul? Not a single one. No one was there. In fact, um, as you go on and read in verse 22 of chapter 16, this is, then the multitude rose up together against them because the Jews had stirred them up and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. You imagine God has called you over to this place. No one meets you except after a little while you go down to the city and there the people grab you, tear off your clothes, not just take them off, tear them off and then get rods and beat you. In fact, um, when they beat a man back in those days, believe me, they knew what they were doing because that was the days when the Olympic Games were invented and people prided themselves on being particularly men on being muscular and strong 
As you know, in the, Olympic, the original Olympic Games, they ran nude because they wanted people to see all their muscles. And this was the day when everybody uh, idolised physique and they beat Paul with rods. Then, to make sure that they got the full effect of that beating, do you know what they did then? They got handfuls of salt and they rubbed it up and down their backs. Now, you know what it's like when you get a bit of salt. You know, ladies, you cut yourself when you're doing the vegetables or something and you get a bit of salt in it, how it stings. You imagine having your back opened up like sliced liver and then having handfuls of salt rubbed up and down on it. And we know that that's exactly what happened with the jailer because in Philippi, which we're reading about now, when he was converted, the Bible says, what's the first thing he did when he was converted? It says he washed their stripes. What was he, why would he need to wash their stripes? He was washing the salt out. Paul and Silas, because of the stinging. And yet, as you read the, the record through, you will find that they were singing. You know, sometimes I meet people who think that there are just too many things in my life. I just can't do God's work. I, 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 I can't even come out to meetings. I can't do anything. Well, let me remind you. There are no excuses in the work of God. Here this man went through everything. And um, the opposition that he received. Now I want to talk about some of the obstacles. We've talked about the opposition. Now I want to talk to you about the obstacles. First of all, why do you think Paul's name was changed from Saul to Paul? Does anyone know what the word or name Paul means? You see, back in Bible times, people were given a name to indicate their character and to indicate something about them. Now, we don't do that today. We just choose a name because, well, we like the sound of that name. Well, that happens to be the popular name of the time. That's why there are lots of kids with the same names through different periods. That's not the way people were named back in Bible times. Paul's name was changed from Saul to Paul. Why? Hmm? Andrew, you are right. Did you hear what Andrew said? Because the word Paul means the little man. Because Paul was only a very small man. In fact, tradition says... This is not the Bible. Tradition says that he was four foot six high, which would mean that if Paul was here this morning, he would not want to stand behind this pulpit because you'd hardly see him. You'd see the top of his head because he's so small. And when you understand that in the days... Of, uh, of, of Paul back in the New Testament times as we said physique meant everything 
And when you go out to preach, let me tell you, if you are a small person, you have a great disadvantage. Over a person who's tall and so forth, they automatically command more respect than a small person does. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that that's the way it is. And and a, a tall person has a great advantage over a small person. And everywhere Paul went, he was advertising the fact when he put his name on a handbill, Paul's coming to town to preach. The little man's coming to teach. Tremendous disadvantage. Tremendously so. You know, when I went to uh, Avondale, the big issue in those days was IQ. You know what IQ is? Ability to be able to absorb facts and so forth. Well, the Americans have a much better system, I think, and that is they worry about more PQ. What's PQ? We understand IQ. What's PQ? Personality quotient, which is some respects, that's why you often see Americans that are much more outgoing than often we are because there's a lot more emphasis in their education system on developing the personality. And if a person has a good personality, I notice that salesmen, in in reading about salespeople, that if you've got a good personality, then it's a tremendous benefit if you're a salesperson or someone who's, who's selling something. And Paul, everywhere he went, he advertised the fact that he wasn't much good. This little man was coming to town. In fact, let me read you what his enemies said about him. Come back to second or over to Second Corinthians, chapter ten. Now, this is what his enemies said. And I've always thought that your enemies will often tell you things your friends will never tell you. Is that true? Yeah, we get sometimes worried because our enemies criticize us. Well, listen, our enemies are helpful, very helpful. Um, 2 Corinthians 10.10 this is what Paul's enemy said about him chapter 10 verse 10 for his letters they say are weighty and powerful what does that mean? let's let's put that in modern language what does that mean? Andrew? (laughs) they're very very good he was an excellent writer wonderful so tremendous ability between his ears. He, he uh, was a master. And he's, even his enemies recognized that. But, you know, when your enemies praise you, there's always going to be followed by a but. Isn't that right? Yeah, he's a good man, but. Or he's a good pianist, but. He might be a good preacher, but. And with the but comes the teardown. Now, what's the teardown as far as Paul was concerned? But his bodily presence is weak. What does that mean? He was just a small, little man, four foot six, which is pretty small, isn't that right? For a man it is. For a woman, it would be pretty small too. 
But for a man, especially in those days, so his enemies recognise that, all right? His bodily presence is weak. And his speech, what? Contemptible. What does that mean? What are they talking about his speech? His talk. If Paul was preaching here this morning, what would they, what would, what are his enemies saying about him? Yeah, I don't know. Yes, hard to listen to. What is it, Andrew? Unimpressive. That's a good word. Unimpressive. That's a good word, in fact. And I think it's pretty accurate. In other words, when Paul got up to preach, there are a whole lot of preachers who would run rings around him. His ability was in his writing, not in his bodily presence or his speech. Now, we don't often think of Paul like this. This is what I say. We have a a very rosy picture about Paul that we've built up in our minds because, well, we've read his books and we're impressed, of course. But there was another side to Paul, and that is he worked against tremendous odds. And there would be far, well, far, by far many people in our church this morning who would have far more ability, natural ability, than Paul had. Far more. Infinitely more. And uh, as far as preaching, nothing much at all. Now, that's his obstacles. We've discussed his um, opposition. We've discussed the, the obstacles that he faced, small and so forth. Now I want to talk about the difficulties that he faced in preaching the word. Come over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 this time. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23. Let's just read this. Paul is defending his leadership and this is what he writes. Are they ministers? Because there were others who were trying to usurp him. And he says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. So what's he arguing here? What's he saying in defense of his ministry? He said, I'm the genuine McCoy. Because I've been through all this. From the Jews, this is verse 24, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Now listen, we read that and we just need to pause. Because that is a horrendous statement. He received five lots of what? 39 stripes because they always made sure they didn't go over 40 so they stayed one because they'd be in deep trouble if they beat a man more than 40. Get the idea? So they always did 39. How many lots of 39 did he get? Five lots. Most men died under a Roman whipping. 
They never survived. This man received five lots of 39. I don't know how he, he, he was able to put up with that. The man is just almost superhuman. And if Paul was here this morning and he took his coat and his shirt off and he stood and let you see his back, it would look like he'd slept on fine wire netting because the welts in his back. And remember the fellows that were issuing this corporal punishment were fellows with muscles bulging in their uh, biceps and triceps and every other step. They were selected for that. Then they would throw the salt on it as well. And Paul received five lots of 39. I tell you, if any one of us got one stripe, it would be on the front of the record for a month. (laughs) Would. But Paul received five lots of 39. Then he says, verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Now you imagine how that would sting. Once I was stoned. That's when he received that vision. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. Now, once again, I've never been, had to spend time like that in the water. But you imagine you're out of the boat. You don't have a life jacket. And you spend all day in the Mediterranean Sea. Then all night. Now, during the day it would be bad enough because, you know, he knew the story of Jonah. And while we are very conscious of sharks in this part of the world, they would be also conscious of um, of the fear plus the survival and all through the night I can't imagine the fear that that would bring to any of us to spend a whole day and a whole night in the Mediterranean Sea you know we hear about thousands of people who have been killed they didn't even survive very long at all But this man survived a day and a night. Verse 26. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of mine own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. And I reckon that would be some of the hardest things to bear because there were people in the church, all they were intent on doing was tearing Paul's influence down. Verse 27. In weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often. People say, oh, I just can't come out. Sleeplessness. In hunger and thirst. I notice most of us aren't hungry. We're doing pretty well. Isn't that right? Most of us have a problem with weight. In fastings, often in cold and nakedness, beside the other things that come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. And every pastor understands that last statement. If he's a true pastor, the care of the churches. 
because there are people in the church who, whose experience was anything but good. And he was concerned about that. And Paul could write here, he's in defense of his, uh, of his um, calling. I have done all of those things. And cold, nakedness. Then if you come to the next chapter, chapter 12 and verse 7, chapter 12 and verse 7, it says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. What do you think would have been the great temptation that Paul would have faced? Do you think? When you think about his, his life and his influence, what do you think was the big issue, the big temptation in his life? Do you think that that's possible? That that would be his temptation? To take the honour and glory to himself? Do you think that? I, I think that's about as, as real as, as the day is bright today. You imagine you're getting all these revelations from God. God is speaking to you and communicating with you. Do you think that there may have been a temptation to think that uh, I'm a little bit better than everybody else? Because God has chosen me. By the way, Ellen White faced the same thing, you know, if you read the story. And what did she say would happen if she got exalted? What did she say would happen? She said, God will bring sickness upon me if I... Exalt myself. Sometimes the Lord has to allow us to go through experiences so we don't get proud. And certainly that would have been the temptation of uh, Paul to become proud. And he said that. And, And God allowed a thorn in the flesh. Now, I've heard a lot of speculation about the thorn in the flesh, and I'm sure you have too. What do most people say that Paul's thorn in the flesh was? Poor eyesight, yes. I don't think that's correct, and I'll tell you why. After all Paul's been through, do you think he's going to um, get uh, upset about poor eyesight? I mean, it certainly would be a great disadvantage, but after all Saul's been through, Dear, oh dear. I checked up on the word thorn, and you might like to do this. The word thorn comes from the Greek word palisade. And it comes from the brutal days of, uh, of Rome when, when they would get a prisoner and they would drive a stake into them. If you can just imagine the prisoners on the ground, bang, 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 with a sharpened stake. Then to make sure they got the full effect of it, they would wind them around like a windmill. And it seems that this is the word that Paul is using because he seems to be pinned to the ground. Every time he tries to do something, there's an obstacle, there's opposition, there are difficulties. Everywhere he goes, there doesn't ever seem to be a plain path. And 
Paul goes on to say in verse 9, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Everywhere Paul turned, there were problems. But I often have thought to myself, God's or our extremity is God's opportunity, isn't it? Because in weakness, God can use us. When we think we're strong, God can't use us. That's the trouble with human pride. And the better we are in the areas in which we work, the more we are prone to pride. You think about that, it's true. Whether it's something to do with our intellect or whether it's something to do with what we do, if we do it well and there's nothing wrong with doing something well, that's very good, but the temptation is to be proud about it. And, and to throw the Lord away. We don't need the Lord. That's the trouble with everybody around here and, and, and in Australia, but particularly here. Why do they need God? I've got a beautiful home. I've got plenty of money, millions of dollars. I've got a job. God's superfluous. Don't need God. This business of ending at a church and worry about God. That's the problem. But when people don't know where their next meal is coming from, it's much easier to be dependent. Isn't that right? And that's why God, I think, before too much longer is going to have to strip away some of the things that we are depending ourselves upon instead of trusting in him. Because in this country, it's very hard to have to trust God. Very hard. Because we trust our ingenuity or we trust our ability we trust our money. We trust everything else except God, because we don't need to. And that affects the church. That's why when it comes to evangelism and sharing our faith, oh, I'm too tired of this, that, and the other thing. Too busy. You wouldn't be like that if, if you didn't know where your next meal was coming from, believe me. You'd have a totally different attitude. And that's why the Lord is sometimes going to have to strip away from us what we are depending upon if we're going to be saved. Because in the present situation, I think it's going to be very difficult for some of us to be saved. Not because we're bad people. Not because we're bad people, not at all. I don't think any of us are here are bad people. But simply because we haven't learned to trust in Jesus. We have no relationship with Christ at all. No, we come to church, yes. That's about it. And even then sometimes we can't get to church. It's too cold, too hot, inconvenient, I'm tired, you know. All sorts of reasons that people have. But Paul here was saying God allowed these experiences to come. Well, poor old Paul. Now he's thrown into, into, into prison. While he's in prison, of course, there's a jailer at the door. So he begins to, uh, to talk to the jailer. And the jailer can't run away either. So he has to listen to what he says. And then when the, uh, there's a change of shift, Paul starts again on the new one that comes along. And when the old one comes back and, and on the new shift, he f- carries on from where he left off. And gradually, 
the jailers are converted and they are then transferred to the edges of the Roman Empire and the message begins to go out all around Rome. And then one day, a familiar voice, Paul hears, and someone comes in and Paul says, what good news have you got to share with me today? And his friend said, I'm sorry to tell you, Paul, but every one of your converts has gone into apostasy. Enough to break the heart of a lion. So what does Paul do? He dips his quill into ink and he begins to write. We wouldn't have the epistles of Paul if it hadn't been for the fact that he was in deep, deep difficulty and in jail, for many of his epistles were written in jail. While we would not say that God pushed him in jail, God allowed it. And if uh, Paul doubted God's leading in his life, he may have questioned why. Well, God had a purpose, because we wouldn't have the New Testament had it not been for that. Then one day a soldier comes to Paul and he says, Paul, I want you to come with me. And he takes him out and Paul looks up into the blue Italian sky. As they walk down the old Apeian Way, which is still there today. And as they walk down, Paul is told to put his head on the block. And the soldier brings up his sword and his head rolls in the dust. And just before that, as he was walking along, he made the statement, I have fought a good fight. What does the rest of the verse say? I have finished my course. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give to me on that day, but not to me only, but to all who love his appearing. Today, Paul is long since gone. But to you and to me is left the responsibility of sharing this faith. God is calling for us as modern Pauls. And as I said, there are many people here in this church this morning who have infinitely more natural ability than Paul had. Infinitely more. And if God can use a man like that to the extent that he was able to use him, to the extent that he is the most outstanding person in the New Testament apart from Christ, if God can lift a man from nothing to where he became the great apostle Paul, there's nothing that can stop what God can do for you and for me. Is that true? I believe so. May God help us as we think about Paul and as we think about the calling that God has given to us to spread this message. We can never rest while there are people outside our church, while there are people going to Sydney University, while there are people in Stanmore, wherever our work is, we can never rest until we do our best. And then God will add his blessing to our efforts and bring wonderful good out of our feeble efforts.
May God help us to be dedicated and to be consecrated to him. Our Father in heaven, I just want to thank you today for the inspiration that the Apostle Paul has for each of us today. Thank you, Lord, for his commitment to you, the face of Jesus that transformed his life. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to spend that time each day in getting to know you as our friend, and so that you will motivate us and drive us and empower us to do what you want us to do. And so bless us through this week. Help us to live as you want us to live. And uh, when Jesus comes very soon, help us to be ready to go home to live with him, I pray for Christ's sake. Amen. This message was made available by the Willara Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit willarachurch.org. That's willara, W-O-O-L-L-A-H-R-A, church.org. From the album A New Song Collective, this is Michelle McKillica singing Faith. Faith is believing that God is and what He says That He spoke the worlds from nothing by His breath It's believing He rewards you if you seek Him with all you are That He holds the book of life, the keys to death You can learn the simple faith of man, how Noah made an ark at God's command. You've heard of Daniel and the lion's den, and we know all about the faith of Abraham. There's a choir of those who've gone before. Torn asunder, wandered in the wilderness, scourged, stoned, tormented, and enslaved. Who through faith subdued kingdoms and wrought righteousness, knowing there would come a better day. receive it strangers and pilgrims but they could see 
content for he said he'll never leave us watch and pray and trust him at his word because he intercedes there's no need to fear for he is working everything out for your It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.